What's the matter? The CIA got you pushing too many pencils? Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. On this episode, we are discussing one of our all-time favorite films, one that Roger Ebert, in his 1987 review, said, quote, begins like Rambo and ends like Alien. Now, it seems like he meant that as a bit of a backhanded compliment because he does go on to say, and in today's Hollywood, that's creativity. Most movies are inspired by only one previous blockbuster. (laughs) Overall, his review is definitely favorable, but we... We're absolutely blown away by this movie, partially because we had no idea what we were in for. So I have to tell the story. It was a hot and humid night in the summer of 87. My cousins dragged me to the theater, and I honestly didn't know what it was all about. All I knew was that I was really not in the mood for a military movie, but that's what it looked like we were in store for. Platoon had come out in 86, and I guess I had had my fill. I don't know. So like the petulant little preteen I was, I sat there in the dark, arms folded across my chest and a smirk on my face, which slowly faded into a wide-eyed look of wonder. The film was an absolute masterpiece, a workshop on the magic of bringing everything together. The writing, the actors, the setting, the dialogue. There's a synergy that can happen with a great motion picture and good gravy. This was it. But when they revealed the alien, I about peed my pants. Maybe the best twist I've ever had in my life. I mean, it wasn't really a twist, I suppose, but the ads didn't feature the Predator at first. And even if they had, there's a chance, a pretty good chance that you may not have even seen them. Because as hard as this may be for, you know, our younger listeners to to wrap their brains around, unlike now, when you can go online and watch movie trailers whenever you want and go on social media and read hundreds of articles about a movie months before it comes out, back then, sometimes you went to movies without knowing much about them a lot of the time. Sometimes, in fact, all you had going in was the poster hanging in the movie theater. And for this one, it definitely did make it seem like it was just another Arnold uh, Army Guy movie. Right. At the very beginning of the film, you get a 30-second little indication that it's not, though. There's this opening sequence of a spaceship. It's very quick, only about 30 seconds, and kind of cryptic. And so it's very easy to forget about once the action of the movie picks up. And in my snottiness, I apparently missed this completely in my first viewing. We've discussed the concept of the 80s action movie in past episodes. We did an episode about quite possibly the consummate example of the genre, Commando, also starring Arnold. And the first part of this movie is so crazy and so over the top that it almost seems like it's a parody of an 80s action movie. Now, what do I mean when I say 80s action movie? Well, we obviously have plenty of modern day action movies, like 99% of them are are Marvel movies now, but there's also stuff like John Wick, Mission Impossible, but the 80s action movie was kind of its own thing, kind of its own genre. Now our action stars are, you know, normally proportioned guys like Robert Downey Jr. and Benedict Cumberbund, (laughs) Uh, you know, and they're fighting CGI comic book monsters. We grew up with giant, shirtless, oiled-up men like Arnold, Sylvester Stallone, Dolph Lundgren, killing, you know, usually very graphically, entire armies full of guys standing there just mowing down cities worth of human beings with giant machine guns, 
while spouting one-liners and somehow never getting shot themselves. There's a deep and profound psychological analysis of the American people in here, but we're not going to touch it. The amount of carnage packed into this pretty short scene at the beginning of this movie where Arnold and his team attack a camp full of enemy soldiers is incredible. The sheer number of explosions and death and guys on fire. And this was, you know, this was back when we literally used to set people on fire for movies. Stuntmen, none of the CGI nonsense. Uh, it's, it's amazing. You think you're in for the ultimate army guy action movie. And then the film does this amazing job of just turning everything, you know, about that kind of movie on its head. This cabinet minister, does he always travel on the wrong side of the border? Apparently they straight off course and we're fairly certain they're in guerrilla hands. So why don't you use the regular army? What do you need us for? Cause some damn fool accused you of being the best. Dylan, you son of a bitch. <laughs> to sum up the story very quickly, Arnold plays Dutch, who leads an elite team of special forces guys on what they're told is a rescue mission in a fictional Central American country. Turns out they're lied to about why they're there, and they end up not just having guerrilla soldiers to deal with, they end up being stalked by a trophy hunting alien being. I realize the way I said gorilla, it, it makes it sound like I was, they were literally gorillas, like gorilla soldiers. <laughs> They're fighting gorillas. They're not. Would have been a very different movie. Uh, anyway, considering the absolutely amazing alien creature is such a huge reason why this movie is so loved, let's start with that, The Predator. It was designed by legendary special effects artist Stan Winston. Just to run down a quick list of some of his other work for those who may not be familiar, The Thing, which I would say is arguably the best practical effects of all time, in my opinion, uh, Terminator, Aliens, Won an Oscar for that. Edward Scissorhands, Terminator 2, won an Oscar for that. Batman Returns, got an Oscar nomination for, you know, Danny DeVito's horrifying gross penguin. Jurassic Park, won an Oscar. So, big deal. Uh, and that's just a tiny number of his most well-known films. He brought the Predator to life, but only after the original design for the creature from another studio ended up being really, really bad. Apparently, the idea for the alien was originally something smaller and just sort of naturally stealthier than the giant creature we ended up getting they originally pictured him as almost ninja like which could have been kind of cool but if you google it you can find pictures of what that original predator suit looked like and it's pretty dumb it looks really bad but one neat thing about those old pictures though is you can clearly see that it is another none other than jean-claude van damme in the predator suit because of the way they wanted this original predator to move they wanted a martial artist in the suit Ever since I learned that, I always thought it'd be so funny if they like looked up in the tree and Billy the Tracker's like, there's something up there. And they look up and it's Jean-Claude Van Damme doing the doing his splits. <laughs> his signature up in splits. The tree. So good. Or his dance, his little dance from Kickboxer. Oh, good stuff. Uh, but sadly, like the original creature design, Jean-Claude Van Damme just did not work out. Just was not a good fit. I've read multiple stories about why he was canned from the picture, but the main reason was that compared to Arnold and Jesse Ventura and Carl Weathers and the other, you know, very big physically imposing guys on the strike force, he just wasn't very intimidating. Jean-Claude Van Damme is like a regular guy. He's like around our height. He's like five, nine or so. So he was replaced by the seven foot two Kevin Peter Hall, who played Harry Bigfoot in the movie Harry and the Hendersons. So we've got Winston's amazing creature design the incredibly intimidating physicality of a performer in the suit who is big enough to make all these guys look small. And last but certainly not least, the iconic 
clicky vocalizations provided by prolific and amazing voice actor from our childhoods, Peter Cullen, best known as the voice of Optimus Prime in the Transformers. And that is a recipe for movie monster success. And like so many other great movie monsters, we don't really get a look, a real look at the Predator until towards the end of the movie, once its camouflage sort of shorts out. And that's probably the, the thing people most associate with the Predator, right? That cool optic camouflage effect. Yes. So let's talk about that camo and other pred tech, baby. The Predator is a species known as Yaucha. And this is very interesting. This is, I've learned this from the internet. There's an entire world of this, a whole wiki about this, of course. And it's the avp.fandom.com. So there's an entire section about the technology that they have at their disposal. And there is some serious stuff. So we are going to up the nerd factor by an order of magnitude starting now. The wiki states... The Yaucha are a highly advanced technological species, evident through their capacity for interstellar travel and their vast array of weaponry and equipment. Yaucha are extremely protective of their technology and will go to great lengths in order to prevent humans from obtaining it, even to the point of self-destruction. Now, I want to highlight some of our favorites from the film. Let's start with the thermoptic camouflage. Apparently, it's part of the wrist gauntlet that they make some great points on at the wiki, describing it as... Quote, light bending adaptive camouflage, allowing predators to form a form of invisibility or at least translucence, unquote. Hilariously, they go on to point out a plot point, quote, the invisibility effect has been known to be shorted out through contact with water or if the arm gauntlet is damaged, unquote. The visual effect was spectacular and honestly was something we'd never seen before, right? This was striking. Yes, such a cool effect. The next thing was what was referred to as the plasma caster, a ranged weapon capable of directing bolts of high energy plasma at distant targets and it's worn on the shoulder. Most notable was the distinctive triangular laser sighting mechanism used to great effect in this movie. The bio-helmet was also a centerpiece, allowing the Predator to see in infrared, and apparently other modes as well, per the wiki, and even allowing for audiovisual recording. Anytime. Anytime. I love that whole thing, right? He'd replay those little sounds. Fantastic. Of course, we cannot forget the wrist blades, razor-sharp, serrated, retractable blades built into the wrist gauntlet. Okay, as teen, as preteens, this was the coolest thing we'd ever seen. Like, holy cow. And then finally, the self-destructive device built into the wrist gauntlet itself. Get to the choppa. One of the most enduring aspects of this film, however, is the paradoxically is paradoxically the fact that despite all of these technological trappings, in the end, all the clever gadgets and gizmos are set aside for a true mano a mano fight. Arnold making crude and simple weapons from the forest, mud interfering with the thermal vision, and the symbolic removal of the bio helmet. They reinforce this message over and over. And having the aliens' stealthiness be technological was a brilliant choice because then you could still have a creature who can stalk his prey undetected, ninja-like, as they originally wanted. But, you know, instead of a sneakier, smaller little guy, you can still have a giant monster who can throw Arnold around like a ragdoll. And that's really how this movie is able to sort of subvert your expectations for the kind of action movie you think it's going to be. As we saw at the beginning, these giant men with a, a hilarious amount of firepower basically take down an entire army without so much as a scratch. And that's just how these movies go. But all of a sudden... Their size and their strength and their firepower and their jungle skills, it all means nothing because now there's something after them that is bigger and badder than they are in every single one of those categories. And in the end, it's not brute strength or firepower or gear that allows Arnold to face off against the Predator. It's his cunning. And, you know, all of his other men get picked off as they try to fight the Predator in the standard action movie way. 
Apparently, the original screenplay had the whole movie be just Arnold versus the Predator, not just the final showdown in the movie, but they changed it. According to Arnold, in an interview, he said, Predator was one of the scripts I read, and it bothered me in one way. It was just me and the aliens, so we redid the whole thing so that it was a team of commandos, and then I liked the idea. I thought it'd be much more effective, uh, a much more effective movie and be much more believable. I liked the idea of starting out with an action adventure, but then coming in with some horror and science fiction. That original screenplay was written by two brothers, John and Tim Thomas. Wait, is it John and Jim? John and Jim Thomas. <laughs> Billy, you know something. What is it? I'm scared, Pancho. You ain't afraid of no man. There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. While it seems that the screenplay wasn't really based on anything in particular, in fact, I read a funny report that said it came from a joke that in the next Rocky movie, since Rocky had already fought everyone, he would have to fight an alien to make it interesting. It does remind me a bit of the very famous UFO flap that started in 1977. If you're even a little interested, you have to read one of the best books on the subject, Confrontations, A Scientist's Search for Alien Contact, published by Jacques Vallée in 1990. I want to tell just a little bit of it, and whether you're a skeptic or a true believer, you'll have to admit this is some wild stuff. From Confrontations, quote, There was no denying the wave of 1977. It started in June near Cape Garupi, north of the town of Vizu, and it moved in both directions along the coast, toward Saint-Louis to the east and toward Belém to the west during June and July. It reached a peak in September and October. They came over the islands at low altitude and circled. They descended as if to land. They made loops and accelerated suddenly. They hovered over houses and probed the insides with beams. They even emerged out of larger objects and re-entered them. And this happened on schedule, every evening for three months. It goes on to say, We found fishermen there who had witnessed the objects, and a doctor who had ministered to the medical needs of dozens of people hit by the light from the chupa. She confirmed that one of her patients died after the experience. Several of these witnesses also told us that they had observed two teams of Brazilian military filming the objects attempting contact. Okay, now I want to compare that to Anna's monologue in Predator. Quote, When I was little, we found a man. He looked like, like butchered. The old women in the village crossed themselves and whispered crazy things, said strange things. El diablo, cazador de hombres. Only in the hottest years this happens, and this year it grows hot. We begin finding our men. We found them sometimes without their skin, and sometimes much, much worse. El que hace trofeos de los hombres means the demon who makes trophies of man. Unquote. There's a lot more to say about the UFO case, but we're going to have to save that for another podcast. While we do see it in the movie, people skinned alive, skulls being collected, Anna comes right out and explains the Predator's motives here. It's a trophy hunter. And this has been going on since she was a kid, this alien or others like it, you know, coming to the jungle to hunt. Now, we love our hometown critic, Roger Ebert, as we've said many times. And when we do episodes about movies that we loved growing up, it's fun to just go back and see what he thought of them back then. In reading his review of the movie, he just kind of missed that detail, though. Uh, from his Predator review, he says, The Predator of the movie's title is A Visitor from Space. That's established in the opening scene. What it is doing in the jungle is never explained. One, why would an alien species go through all the effort to send a creature to Earth just so that it could swing from trees and skin American soldiers? Or two, 
why would a creature so technologically advanced need to bother with hand-to-hand combat when it could just zap Arnold with a ray gun? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Roger, we kind of missed the whole central tenet here. Before we get to music, we have to talk about sound for just a second. The movie is just so rich with its soundscape. The jungle, the tremendous sounds of the guns, the whoosh of the thermal vision zooming in, the predator clicking sound, which I've been imitating since 1987. Side note, as Scott alluded to earlier, this was recorded by none other than Peter Cullen. Autobots, roll out. And he took inspiration from the noise crabs make because (laughs) he apparently thought the predator looked a bit crab-like. So let's talk music. Now, this is from a very neat website called alltherightmovies.com. Originally, Joel Silver wanted Michael Kamen to write the music after working with him on Lethal Weapon. Kamen, however, was unavailable because he was working on another 80s classic, Adventures in Babysitting. At this point, Silvestri had already been in the industry a good 15 years, but it was only in the last three that he'd started to become well-known. This was because of his work on Flight of the Navigator, 1986, another movie about aliens, and two Robert Zemeckis films, Romancing the Stone in 84 and Back to the Future in 1985. After hearing Silvestri's score for Back to the Future, John McTiernan recommended him to Joel Silver. Silver agreed and brought him in. And what a score it is. The score was remastered in 2012, and I have to read you from the description directly. Quote, Silvestri's incredibly muscular score is a dynamite example of scoring via small motifs. Rhythmic punctuation in low brass melded with busy percussion figures creates an incredibly terse, aggressive foundation for melodic ideas in strings and upper brass. The resulting music remains grim, tough, and violent throughout. Unquote. Isn't that awesome? Wow. I love it. If you want the deepest dive into this you can possibly imagine, you can get a university-level course on it for free. Check out Alex Ball on YouTube. So it's A-L-A-X-B-A-L-L. His video, How the Predator Music Was Made. Honestly, it's 21 minutes of serious musical theory. To give you a taste, quote, During the scene, we hear the cue dog tags, which is another shining example of taking these four minor chords and using the power of orchestration. From top to bottom, we have woodwinds, brass, percussion, and strings, unquote. So that's the serious part. But now, now for the silly part. There is a parody musical based on the quote, If it bleeds, we can kill it. It currently has over 4 million views on YouTube, and it's also available on iTunes as a standalone song. It is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It masterfully weaves quotes from the movie into a Broadway-like musical number that, even when cut together with these scenes from the movies, especially when it's cut that way, makes for perhaps the greatest, most creative homage to this film, or any film, frankly, ever. Please pause right now. Go watch it. It's just three and a half minutes long. We'll wait. Yes, it's hilarious. Definitely worth a watch. Speaking of the soundtrack, I credit this movie for the appreciation we both have to this very day for one Richard Wayne Pennyman, a.k.a. Little Richard. We loved the scene early in the movie where Dutch and his crew are in the chopper and Long Tall Sally is playing. And while, you know, we'd almost certainly heard Little Richard's music before this on the oldies 
channel or whatever, the oldie station, it was hearing it in the context of this movie that made us really fall in love with the song. And that was the magic of movie soundtracks back then. And this scene is used as a brilliant little introduction to all the characters we're about to see, you know, get killed by a giant alien monster. The standout of which I think is probably Blaine, played by a pro wrestler turned movie star, turned governor, turned professional conspiracy theorist, (laughs) Jesse the Body Ventura, who's great in this movie. Now, I know they're not weird to see in movies now, but when Blaine, again, Jesse Ventura's self-proclaimed sexual tyrannosaurus, (laughs) who ain't got time to bleed, and he pulls out this giant, you know, Gatling gun that looks like it should be mounted on a helicopter and not carried around, you know, by some guy, it it blew us away. And in the scene where they take out the enemy camp in the beginning, it contributes beautifully to the hilarious carnage as he just stands there shredding human beings and trees and buildings with it. According to the Internet Movie Firearms Database, Old Painless, as he calls it, is a GEM-134 minigun. And apparently the real-world version of the weapon is actually more destructive than they made it look in the movie. From that website, the weapon was powered by an electric cable hidden off camera and fired blank rounds to ease the recoil force. In addition, the rate of fire is substantially decreased from the normal 6,000 RPM to 1250 RPM. There are several reasons for this. To ease recoil, save on ammunition, and because director John McTiernan wanted the barrels to be visibly turning rather than just a blur, Ventura still spoke of the fearsome recoil, saying that, quote, you just had to grit your teeth and hold on, and then it was like firing a chainsaw. (laughs) Anybody making a list of iconic classic movie weapons would have to include old painless. In addition to, you know, one of the greatest on-screen movie weapons of all time, Predator gives us some of the best lines in a movie. So many great quotes. If it bleeds, we can kill it. I ain't got time to bleed. Sexual Tyrannosaurus. And of course, all of Hawkins, you know, off-color jokes, which unlike when we were 12 and saw this movie and would quote them pretty much nonstop to each other (laughs) because they were dirty and we thought they were hilarious. uh, You know, we won't repeat those here. This is a family show after all. On top of everything else we've discussed, all the things that make this movie so special, it also gives us one of the greatest final showdowns in movie history. When we see Dutch, covered in mud, make his last stand against the alien, and we see its face for the first time as it strips off all of its high-tech gear, and it's then, when Dutch sees this thing's true face, that he gives us the final great classic line from this film. You're one ugly... Melon farmer. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say melon farmer. <laughs> I saw the, uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie Jackie Brown on like network TV or basic cable and they went in and they dubbed over all of Samuel L. Jackson's many, many, you know, MF words with other way better MF words like <laughs> monkey flipper and melon farmer. Melon farmer was my personal favorite. Uh, it's, it's a great final battle where, as we said, we see Arnold completely helpless in a physical fight for the first time ever, which was crazy And it was so cool to see him having to rely on his brains instead of his brawn. This movie went on to spawn a bunch of movie sequels and prequels, most notably 1990s Predator 2 starring Danny Glover as an L.A. cop trying to track down the killer behind a string of grisly murders and Gary Busey as a government agent who knows what they're actually up against. It's kind of a goofy but but fun movie uh, written, as it turns out, by the same two-brother team who wrote the original Predator, John and Jim slash Tim Thomas. (laughs) And just a couple of years ago, we got a really, a great 
prequel called Prey that takes place in 1719 and has a more primitive version of the alien facing off against Comanche warriors. As cool as that was to see, and as good, sometimes even great, as some of the many movies and video games and comic books inspired by the original Predator have been, they'll just never match the experience of seeing the original for the first time back in 1987 and having our action movie expectations so brilliantly subverted. Predator is a cross-genre masterpiece that manages to challenge expectations and delight us while never straying too far from the conventional tropes of action and horror films. And that's because it is so much more. At its core, it represents the tumultuous struggle of the self, stripped of technological trappings and literally covered in mud against the unknown. What the hell are you? It represents the dawning of self-empowerment. If it bleeds, we can kill it. And perhaps most of all, it reminds us of how precarious life is. As Qui-Gon Jinn quipped in The Phantom Menace, there's always a bigger fish. And on that note, stay limber. <laughs>